Good morning, Father Anderson. Oh, buenos dias, Rabbi Math Mateo. I don't know what rabbi is in Spanish, but I'm sure it's awesome. Um, but how are you, man? What's going on? There's a lot going on in this country. How's your soul doing? How are your kids interpreting everything that's going on in the world? It's definitely challenging. Uh, I think that there's, in some degree, we, we I mean, my kids are very young, um, although my oldest is certainly aware of the challenges and um, the strife that's going on within the country, uh, but really trying to, you know, talk to them, you know, maturely, but also, you know, age appropriately um, in terms of, you know, we, not in terms of the challenges that are there, but the opportunities that we have to make change. So, you, you know, go. that's, you that's one of the big things that we've been talking to our kids about, about, you know, why this persists, why this is here in our, in our, in our country and throughout the world. And, you know, as Jews and, and human beings, we have a responsibility to uh, mend it, to make it better and try and make everyone free. Well, my friend, today we will have a guest on who uh, is going to take on a real big topic in the midst of all this uh, uh, upheaval that we have, which is the big hot topic is police brutality, uh, police reformation, defunding police. Uh, how do we approach that uh, as a society of really trying to, that, that's, that's a big part of this um, um, struggle that we hear right now, especially from our brothers and sisters who are uh, of color. And uh, so we have uh, Reverend Gail Fisher-Stewart with us today. So did you know, check this out. Did you look at her resume? This is ridiculous. So she was 20 years in the DC police department. She was a captain. Uh, and then she goes on to be a criminologist and teach uh, at the university about criminology and justice. And then she becomes an Episcopal priest. So if we don't have a good show today, that's on us because yep. um, she's she, she's going to bring it. So uh, no, but we're really grateful to have her here today because uh, she obviously is in very high demand. Um, and to really just parse this out, like how w what's the reality of this? We're hearing a lot of stuff about the police department. Is is it a crime to be black? Was your experience as a police officer? Did, did you feel that that was being instilled in you, that philosophy that the black and the brown people are the criminals first until proven innocent? Uh, and was that part of your formation? And then if there was, where do we go from here? So uh, mm. we're going to solve all that in the next 40 minutes easily, easily. So, so let's bring her on. Let's bring her on. So uh, let's get to it. If you can, please rate our podcast, whichever uh, platform you're using, and leave a comment as well. After you get done with listening to this one, say how awesome Gail is. Go buy her book and put that on the comments because it really helps us with the algorithm of being found by more people. And we love to share this content with others. God bless you all. Enjoy the podcast. Peace. The opinions expressed on this program are those of the program hosts and their guests and are not necessarily those of WSTU, St. Mary's Episcopal Church, and Temple Bait Hyam. Products that may be mentioned are not necessarily intended as an endorsement. Any reproduction or retransmission of this broadcast is strictly prohibited. And now, WSTU presents a priest and a rabbi. Call in with questions and comments at 220-9788, 220-WSTU. Now, here's your host. Hey, good morning, everybody in Stewart, Florida. It is Father Christian Anderson from St. Mary's Episcopal Church. And across the way from me via Zoom, via the digital interwebs, is the most handsome, wonderful, and charming priest. Well, rabbi. Priest. Well, I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm just, just encouragement <laughs> here. But rabbi, this side of the Jordan River, it, 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 it is uh, Rabbi Matthew Durbin from Temple Beth Hayam. How are you, brother? Good morning. 
I'm doing really well. How are you? Uh, I, I'm doing, I'm doing, I'm doing quite well, man. You know, baby's getting about five, six hours of sleep at night. So that, that's just a game changer, you know, mm. that starts to happen. Um, wow. Yeah, I know. I know. And, and you're doing okay. Your three girls are, are getting, getting the sleep they need. <clears throat> my, my, my kids are getting, um, my kids are getting a lot of entertainment. Okay, you didn't answer the question. So, they, so that means they're just staying up and watching movies all night, or what are you saying? Yeah, you know, we 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 do we do we do we do uh, a lot of learning before uh, before we do some TV, and yeah, we we've been watching a lot of movies and a, a lot of family time. Uh, it, it's now we're at the point where uh, pool season is open. Okay, let's try this again. So, are your girls getting a lot of sleep at night, or or what? You still haven't answered the question. So let's let's break it. Let's break it out. Of, oh, of, gosh. of my oh, kids, my how many get good night's sleeps? I, I'd say out of three, uh, probably one or two. But uh, yeah, we're doing we're doing okay. We're All doing right. Okay. All right. Well, enough of the sleep talk because America is not asleep right now. That's for sure. Uh, America is alive and happening, and there are many discussions and uh, the. Uh, in the air, the energy is high, the temperature is hot, uh, and, and America is open to a dialogue, I, I think a dialogue, or at least a topic that usually it runs away from and, and says, ugh, ugh, you got some people saying, I don't want to talk about this, but it's uh, the big R, uh, racism is uh, on the forefront of us as we still wrestle with COVID-19, we're dealing with multiple pandemics here, and uh, so there's the last couple of weeks, you and I have been bringing on guests who are a lot smarter than us who, who can really comment on uh, really just the movement that's happening and try to put it through a lens of faith uh, and find out where God is in the midst of all this. Uh, and, uh, and today is, is no different uh, since we know that through uh, a common theme that we hear is this, and now it's becoming a very hot, uh, blooded, um, political uh, sort of uh, talking point that's kind of using be, used being now to divide the two political parties, which is this idea of what to do with the police and this this term of defunding the police, which is now God that term needs to be parsed out, but it just sounds so horrible and, and negative, right? Defund the police, uh, and it's become this battle cry. Uh, and so, so what does this mean? Uh, we know that there's a history uh, between Black Americans, let's say people of color. Uh, and and the police department, which is uh, not not quite so positive, um, and we want to parse this out. Well, where are we at with this? And so, we brought on someone today who absolutely is a lot smarter than us. But her her experience with this topic, her life experience with this topic, um, not only has she spent over twenty years working as a a police officer with the Metro uh, uh, DC Police Department, she's a police captain. She's also a criminologist, meaning she's taught criminology um, at, at um, uh, in, in university. But then she becomes an Episcopal priest. So I think we hit the jackpot, Rabbi. What do you think? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I know so because she was like, listen, guys, I got to duck out 10 minutes early today because my phone is blowing <laughs> up. And so we are very grateful that we have Reverend Dr. Gail Fisher Stewart with us from St. Luke's Episcopal Church in DC. She is also the author of Preaching Black Lives Matter. Uh, Reverend Dr. Gail, thank you so much for taking the time to be with us today. Ah, thank you for the invitation. It is so good to be here. It's really, really good. It's a tough topic, but uh, we need to really 
uh, parse it out, as you say, and figure out what we're going to do, or if we don't uh, take this time, if we don't understand that right now is an opportunity to make great changes, we'll be back here talking about the same thing. And we don't oh. want to do that. We've done it over and over and over again. It is time to finally do something that makes a difference. So, Rabbi, I think she already said that she's willing to come back to the show. I think that's what you just heard. Is that, is that what awesome. I heard? Oh, great. Thank that's you. what you had. Great. You haven't even experienced it yet, and you're already in. So, um, all right. So, let, let's just get, let's get to know you a little bit. So, sure. uh, we, I told the audience about your background, but just tell us, you, you, you was working in the what, – what drew you to uh, working um, – in the police department, working for the being okay. I, I joined the uh, Metropolitan Police Department in on Juneteenth, nineteen. I'm serious, Juneteenth, nineteen seventy two, and I retired Juneteenth, come on, nineteen ninety two. Yes, I did, and uh, I, I never thought about being a police officer. Uh, uh, policing wasn't positive in the black community because this was particularly at, uh, four years after. Uh, the riots, uh, four years after the assassination of Dr. Uh, Martin Luther King Jr. Uh, but I was sitting in sociology class in undergrad, and I didn't have money to come back the next semester. And so rather than paying attention to the professor, I was reading the want ads. And I saw that the D.C. police were hiring. I got up, left my <laughs> class in the middle of the class, got on the bus, went down, took the test, and the rest is history. I had never intended to stay. I just wanted uh, somebody to help me pay for college. But once you get like five years on and you can retire at 20, you say, oh, I can do 15 more standing on my head. And that's, that's so it's not glamorous. You know, it's nothing that would have been on cops, although now cops has been, you know, taken off the air. Uh, nothing exciting. It was just, uh, that's what I needed to do to finance my education. And during that time and during that, I guess now all the time is a tumultuous time in America, but especially then dealing with uh, race and uh, social issues, it's hard to just sum it all up. Can you give us a little bit of insight of what that was like for you? <laughs> well, uh, yeah, coming off of, of the riots, which uh, before the, the assassination of Dr. Mark Luther King, we had the cities blowing up and the police were at the center of it because uh, there was not a great relationship between the police and the black community. And so coming into policing, number one, you had blacks looking at you going like, why are you going over to the pigs? Like, what is wrong with you? My parents mm. even had difficulty with it. Mm. And then being a woman, um, we caught more hell uh, right from from the wives of the police officers than we did uh, from the community sometimes, and we would we would tell them, look, we ride with your husbands nine hours a day. We don't want them. You, we will send them back home to you. Huh. Um, but there was racism and sexism not only in the community but also on the police departments, and that's why uh, we had these great reforms during the seventies that continue that, oh, if we just add more black officers to the departments, then they'll be better able to relate to the black community. If we just add more Asian officers to the community, they'll be, so it went on and on and on. And here we are in 2020 and we have all of these reforms and we're still talking about the same thing. And I would love for somebody to give me a number. Um, of the billions of dollars that have been spent on police reform since the 70s. Mm -hmm. So and if anybody out there knows. <laughs> yeah. In, in, mm -hmm. in your experience, you know, the, 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 
the ability for the police force to put in community relations. I mean, was that was that was that in the purview of the police department in the 1970s? Was that something that was done in the 90s? I mean, when did that whole image of the police force need to change from a community relational standpoint? Community relations units and officers uh, in the 60s, 70s, because it's realized that you needed somebody in a white hat to go out into the community, but it caused friction within the departments because you had the folks in the white hats and then you had the folks in the black hats. So you were pitting officers against each other doing that rather than seeing everybody uh, as being community oriented, which was what happened in the 80s with the community-oriented period or era. Uh, then we said, oh no, everybody should be community-oriented. Um, and so we're still kind of, kind of sorta in that phase, but it's, it's not working because we see the militarization of, of police departments. Uh, they got all of this money from the feds. And so they went out and bought tanks. And I looked at the police officers doing the protest here. And, and to me, they look like the stormtroopers from Star Wars. Um, and, when, and when you look like you're going to war, when you dress up, you know, our parents would say you act like you dress, right? And so when you're all dressed up in, in battle gear, you're looking for a fight and everybody looks like an enemy. Mm. Right. Now, so just a rewind, when you went, when the, when the department committed to hiring more uh, police officers that really mm -hmm. represented the communities they were serving, you were there when that was happening yes. and also being a black police officer yourself. Right. Do, do, you, do you find that that made a big dent in changing the way that communities uh, related to or police officers and vice versa, how police officers related to the communities? Was that, was that a, did the arrow go up as in helping create uh, better communication and understanding between the two worlds? Not really. That's why we're here uh, today with the same issues, because uh, policing is is kind of like a bait and switch. Uh, people come on because, OK, I want to make a difference in my community. I want to change policing uh, without understanding the true uh, mission of policing, which is to control black and brown bodies. And so when you come on, there is a conflict within yourself. Do I stay true to what I believe I'm here to do, or do I kind of uh, become socialized into uh, the general uh, culture in order to, number one, remain safe, because if other officers, not one of them or a rat, uh, you could be left on the street and uh, without any assistance. I remember one instance I called for, and I was a lieutenant, and I called for assistance because something was happening on the street. And so as the police were responding, they were on the wrong side of the street. And so I called communication. I said, tell them to get back on the right side of the street. And so my sergeant said, well, you know, you are fortunate. At least they're coming to help you. There are some we won't come to help. Wow. So just that going on within departments, you know, as you saw uh, with Buffalo, when they knocked down that uh, uh, senior citizen, one officer seemed like he was going to stop and help, but he was pushed. You know, he's pushed by another, like, no, you don't do that. And because you're going to need these other officers. And we know that the 57, uh, the other 57 resigned from the unit in support of the two officers who were put on suspension. So what does that tell you about the culture of policing? Yeah. 
blue blood. Uh, yes, the blue line. That it runs very line. deep. So yeah. let me. So let's but, go but back but to hang that. Hang on, hang on, hang on, because I think it's an important. Sorry, uh, Father. I think it's an important question: is at what point do our loyalties to our profession supersede our loyalties to humanity? That's an individual decision. Mm -hmm. Are you strong enough to resist the lure of of the police culture? Because we've been talking about changing the police culture for fifty years now, but until we uh, until we are honest about what the true nature of policing is in this country, it is not to serve and protect everybody. It is to control black and brown bodies and to protect white life and white property. All right. So tell us more about that. So let's 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 parse that out. So the that means this is where the criminologist you got to put your professor hat on for us. Uh, so can you tell us more about what, what that means in the history of, of policing? The history of policing uh, goes back before the end of uh, slavery. And, and this is where you get the criminalization of, of black skin. Uh, one protester said when your complexion is 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 your uh, like your arm, your arm by your complexion. People just see black skin because uh, after the the police murder of Freddie Gray in Baltimore, Kelly Brown Douglas, one of an, another female Episcopal priest, reminded us that the black body was never meant to be free. When we got here in 1619, there is no program that, oh, 200 years, 400 years, we will free everybody. And so what that means is that uh, the black body was chattel property. It belonged to somebody. And so if you were off the plantation, uh, you had to prove that you had not stolen yourself, committed theft from the slave owner. And so you had slave patrols who would make, who would ask questions, who, who do you belong to? Do you have your papers? Where is your pass? And so after, um, after slavery was ended, uh, there was still this criminalization of the black body. You were still presumed guilty that you needed to prove that you had not stolen yourself or anything else. And so we see that today that you can't drive a nice car without being stopped by the police. You can't live in a predominantly white gated community without being questioned as to whether or not you are legally there. You can't walk around a store without being followed. And our children, our children, five and six years old, cannot be children without somebody calling the police and the police coming and locking up, putting handcuffs on five and six-year-olds just for acting as a five and six-year-old does. But they can't do it. So this whole thing of criminalizing black skin, that it is presumed that you are guilty and you have to prove that you are actually uh, innocent. And so after enslavement, a lot of the slave patrols morphed into police departments in the South. And we have a direct connection with Charleston, South Carolina. The slave patrol be, uh, became the city guard and the city guard then was the first formal police department in Charleston, South Carolina. And wow. so we see that in the South, but in the North, uh, you had freed, uh, freed blacks coming, you know, the great, the first migration, second migration coming. You had immigrants, different immigrants coming from Eastern Europe, 
plus you had industrialization where you had workers who are saying we're not being treated fairly and some of the early police departments in the north were really to break the strikes of workers who were protesting against the industrialists and so it's all about protecting maintaining white property interest and so un until you acknowledge that and accept it you're not going to be able to really make any changes and people don't want to do that because well does that make me a bad person it doesn't make you a bad person it just lets you know that something is wrong with the system and we really have to go to the root we can't keep staying on top of for example the iceberg that you see the ice that you see you have to go below the waterline and deal with the systemic racism and the foundations of policing in order to make lasting change because as i said we we've been reforming in this era of reform since the 60s okay so it, it sounds like you know, in the church, and I don't know about in, 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 for, for you, Rabbi, in the temple, but like the church is, you know, the Episcopal church has blood on its hands. We, we oh, yeah. have the seminary that I attended. I, I think that maybe you and I both attended. Did you attend Virginia? Yes. Okay. Yeah. So, the, so, so it has recently gone through a process to acknowledge its sin of having slaves who built that, mm -hmm. um, that built that seminary. And so it uh, gone through a process of reparations. And so that is a, of obviously a challenging discussion for many to talk about. There's kind of different points of view, but they've done the work and it got a little ugly, but, uh, but, but they are all using their faith to get through this and get to a place where they can say, this is what we're going to do. Mm -hmm. But it was a process to acknowledge the history, to acknowledge the mm -hmm. truth. Uh, because if we're all going to be part of this one body of faith mm -hmm. and just say, well, that was the past. Let's just move forward. You know, to it's, it's, it's like turning to like your sister or brother and say, yeah, I, I know you were raped earlier, but can we just move forward? It's not going to happen again. No one's going to rape you. Maybe. I mean, maybe. You might do some things that people are going to think like you're, you know, over-sexualized and whatever. But like, let's just move forward. Right. And, and so it's hard, I think, for us just because, A, people don't say, well, that was the past. It wasn't me. I didn't do that. I didn't own slaves. Um, uh, but, but, okay, well, that's you. But what about your sister or brother who went through the trauma, who know the trauma, uh, and... Uh, so in the church, I think we have a, an advantage to say, well, we believe in this thing called sin and we believe in this thing called repentance. So can we live into that? Uh, but the police force doesn't have that. Value <laughs> right. say, okay, this is the day we acknowledge all of our sins and we come to the cross and we fast mm -hmm. all day. So mm -hmm. uh, is there, what do you see as, as the hope of that acknowledgement of this is where we came from? Let's just call it what it is. Like, we don't have to even call it sin. It's just our history. It's and just it's our in, history. It's informing it, who we are today. It, right. That conversation can happen. It, it, it can. It, it's no different than uh, teaching history in our schools. We don't teach a complete history. Right. So let's go back and complete the history and tell and, and tell, teach the whole history, the good, bad, and the ugly. The same with policing. Um, in recruit school and in, in, in the academy, you get the history of policing and O.W. Wilson and the three eras of policing. Uh, but you don't discuss the racism, the systemic racism in policing. And in fact, uh, as part of this, I, I developed a curriculum that I've sent to like seven chiefs in the area. And two have um, indicated an interest that they want their officers to have this curriculum. And it, and it really was a gift to them. It's not like, uh, call me and pay me. It's like, no. Uh, usually when there's something going on, police chiefs will be asked, well, what are you going to do about it? I said, no, this is a gift to you. 
this is a gift to you. Use it as you feel free. But it is um, a, a lesson, a course of study that uh, identifies the history of policing and then ask the officers, does the history of policing conflict with your values? And if it conflicts with your values, no, you're not going to leave the department, but are you strong enough to recognize that that pull is there, but your values are strong enough to keep you going in the right direction? So it did, for us to get a grasp of everything you're saying right now, that what we see today uh, and what led to George Floyd, who was just, uh, there's been many George Floyds. We, this one was just yes. caught on videotape. Right. Um, and if it happened during the day and it happened with, and, and the officer knew the camera was on him, just right. imagine when the camera is off and it's nighttime. Um, what, what, so you're saying that the, the, since it's been woven into the fabric of policing since, uh, from, from slavery on, mm -hmm. that it's still intrinsically a part of the formation of officers today that through maybe unknowingly or unconsciously, or maybe knowingly and consciously saying, uh, listen, we're going to look at statistics. We're going to look at this formation and show that that black equals criminal. I mean, are, are what we say, do, do you think, let me rephrase this. Do you think the formation of police officers now in police academy, was there any time during it where you're like, wait a minute, this, this education you're giving us is definitely saying that black is criminal. No one has pointed it out, but that's exactly what happens. I mean, if you look at that, that scene, Number one, you know that the camera is running. You hear people saying, stop. You hear him asking, pleading, a grown man pleading for his mother. You're not concerned. So either you really don't have a heart or more, most likely you don't think that anyone will care because you won't do that if you think you're gonna be held accountable by your department. There is no way you could do that unless you truly believe you will not be held accountable by your department. So where did you learn that? And then how do you do that to another human being? You do it because blacks are not seen still as full human beings. And so that was an object to him. That was not a human being. That was an object he had his knee on. Just like when slavery, you were not a human being, you were property. And so when you have that mentality and you think you're not going to be held accountable, and that's the major thing, he did not think anyone would care enough to hold him accountable, or you cannot do that to another human being. Mm -hmm. So you have to ask, what was the culture of that particular department where he says, you know, yeah, he's dead, but who cares? Nothing's going to happen to me. And I know he was shocked. And the other three had to be shocked that, what do you mean? I'd, I'd really like to talk to them and say, now that you realize that you were part of murdering a human being and to Officer Chauvin, that you murdered, what is going through your mind? Do you think you've done anything wrong? Right, because the, the, the counter argument would be he's just, or they were just four bad seeds and thank God we caught them, but all police officers uh, for the most part, all are, are all wonderful. And and I don't think you're challenging that there are incredible police officers out there because you, you, you were one of them and I'm sure you worked with many of them. But what you're challenging is the whole system around it and saying, 
we are responsible as a society for lifting up and fostering a police program that inherently creates this bias and forms us to think that those who are of darker skin are the criminals, are not equal. And that human. Not and human. That so how much, how much of, how much of policing is uniform around the country? Right. I mean, isn't it isn't each state, each county, each precinct? I mean, is there autonomous nature in the way that they approach amongst themselves as opposed to like a national protocol? We don't have a national protocol. We have 18,000 um, law enforcement agencies and they're all basically local. And that doesn't include the, the 50, which might be 40 federal law enforcement agencies. Mm -hmm. And so there is no national body that can create standards uh, that will be mandated nationally. And then uh, departments will be held accountable. Everything mm -hmm. is policing is local. Oh, policing is wow. local. All right, we're gonna take a real quick break. We're gonna come back and just keep on uh, driving into this um, and, and, and then find out <laughs> where is the hope in all of it. Um, and so where, if you're just jump, uh, joining us, uh, we are on air with uh, uh, Reverend Gail Fisher-Stewart, who is a former uh, captain of the DC Metro Police, um, also a criminologist. And uh, it is a, a joy to have her. If you want to call in and ask any questions, 772 220-9788. We're going to take a quick break. Be right back and continue with this interview. You're listening to a priest and a rabbi podcast. If you haven't done so yet, make sure to subscribe and please leave a rating and a review, five-star rating and a positive review if you can. We certainly appreciate it. That is the best way to make sure that others out there just like you can find this podcast. If you want to get in contact with Father Christian or Rabbi Durbin, you can do so by emailing a priest and a rabbi at gmail.com. And the absolute best way to get a hold of the fellas is to call into the radio show. This podcast airs live on the radio every Friday morning from 9 to 10 a.m. on WSTU 1450. And you can listen live online at WSTU1450.com. And if you want to join the show, you can call in to 772-220-9788. That's 772-220-9788. You. Hey everyone, this is Father Christian here on A uh, Priest and a Rabbi. So happy for you to be here on this podcast with us. And, and I want to uh, let you know that I have uh, started a uh, YouTube channel called Your Favorite Christian. And you can check it out on YouTube. And uh, every Monday I drop a new episode. And it's always through the lens of faith, but taking on different topics such as dating, relationships, marriage, pop culture. Uh, I've done one recently where I went out to the art show and talked about how do we find our relationship with God through all the what all the latest artists are doing. Um, last week was what do women really want um, in a man uh, and interviewing different people to be a part of that. So uh, please check that out on YouTube. Subscribe, like, share. Uh, 
put on the notification so you get that every Monday. Um, I also want to let you know of uh, we this podcast wouldn't be here if it wasn't for a generous donor from St. Mary's Episcopal Church who wishes to remain anonymous. All he asked though was that um, the information gets out that St. Mary's Episcopal Church here in Stewart has a healing center, and so you can call if you're looking for a counselor, someone to be there for you during a challenging time, and you can call the church at seven seven two two eight seven three two four four. We also have a group of Stephen ministers who have been trained over 50 hours of training to be with you and walk with you during a time of crisis. They are not counselors. They are trained just to be more of the presence um, of, of Christ or and, and walk with you during a time of crisis, whether it's a, a good crisis of having, oh my gosh, my daughter's about to get married, or if there's something a little bit heavier. So give us a call, 772-287-3244, and I thank that anonymous donor who uh, makes this all possible. All right, God bless you, and enjoy the rest of the podcast. Welcome back. Welcome back to A Priest and a Rabbi. This is Father Christian Anderson here with uh, Rabbi Durbin. He's from Temple Bechayim, and I'm from uh, St. Mary's Episcopal Church, but together we're just two dudes on the radio right now, because really the, the star of the show is Reverend Gail Fisher-Stewart, who we have with us, um, a former police officer in, um, in uh, Washington, D.C., a criminologist, and also an Episcopal priest, so you know there's definitely something right about her. Um, and so she's on the show today, and we're talking about uh, police brutality, police reformation. Um, so let's just kick off with this. Do you, so uh, this hot topic, and this, it's becoming highly politicized right now, uh, Reverend Gale, this idea mm-hmm. of defunding the police. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, that term can mean so much. And, and during our call, uh, I, believe, I believe you brought this up, is that there's so much you you all get called as police officers when i say you all you all get called for everything 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 so when you hear defunding the police you brought up a point yesterday that's saying that doesn't mean like that that, that you're going to take the money and throw it somewhere else like you're, that that defunding the police is more like adding or helping you all by giving money to other people who can be on the team so you all don't have to be responding to every call can you can you parse that out a little bit uh, Defunding the police really has to be defined because if you just put that out there, it sounds like, okay, we won't have the police tomorrow. And, and that frightens people. Therefore, you cannot get them on board. But what it's really looking at is, is all the services that uh, the police provide that can be handled by other agencies or other individuals. And so how do you reallocate uh, a, per, uh, a portion of the funding of the police department to strengthen those social service agencies. Um, you really don't need a police officer uh, for uh, a call for someone who's having a, a mental breakdown. What you need are physicians, what you need are social workers. Um, but when you send the police, it can escalate. Uh, you don't need the police many times for incidents of, of, of domestic uh, issues. If it's domestic violence, yes, where a crime has been committed. But you just need somebody who can figure out what's going on between these two people and get them some help. Um, but society doesn't have patience and they want it now. So you call the police for everything. And so it's really looking at the role of police in society and taking away those things that are not police related and give them to people who can actually handle them because the police only have like, we're going to, we're going to arrest you. 
And we have to sit down. We don't have time to sit down and counsel. And, you know, to, it, it, we don't. And, oh, this is an education issue. Uh, this is, you know, a counseling issue. Their, their only tool is to lock you up, which only, you know, escalates the situation. And so it's really looking at what we have asked our police to do and finding other agencies and so to take that money so it's a dual thing because you can't just take that money and give it to other agencies without making sure that those agencies are equipped to do what they are called to do and so you have to work together and so defunding can be scary if it's not explained uh and 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 too often it isn't and people just say oh the police won't be here monday oh if you take the money away yeah the police will be there but they only come to situations where an actual crime that requires the police presence, uh, that's when they'll come. Right. Yeah, I fear that that conversation is just gonna be hijacked, just become a political debate. Yeah. You're one side against the other and say, if you vote for this person, you don't want police. If you vote for me, you want police. And so then we won't get anything done here um, in, in this conversation and be able to, won't be able to hear the details mm -hmm. really clearly. Mm -hmm. um, so in this ref this time of hopefully, or maybe reformation, you speaking as a black woman, as a former police officer, also as a woman of God, and you understand the history of policing as a criminologist, uh, you've talked about this curriculum that you put forth towards mm -hmm. other captains and departments. What are some of these steps or thoughts that you have that can encourage uh, reformation or a new way of seeing and approaching policing? Well, one thing is that uh, you, you have to look at all of these bills that are coming out quickly that say, okay, we're going to ban the chokehold. We're going to do this. We're going to do that. We're going to do that. Number one, Mr. Floyd was not killed with a chokehold. Right. Right? Right. Right. Uh, right. And, and, <laughs> right. That's the that's the first thing, but it looks good politically. The other thing, if if you're going to ban certain things that the police are doing, you just can't have those words on paper. You have to bring them in and retrain them. Just putting it out on a piece of paper doesn't mean they're going to stop because there's something called muscle memory. And if you've been doing this chokehold for ten years, and something happens, you're gonna you're gonna go back to that chokehold. And so there has to be retraining. And so what we have to do is, is, is really work with the politicians and educate them. Uh, we have to work with police chiefs. Uh, this is an opportune time for the black police chiefs in this country to say, okay, we're gonna band together and we're going to do something with our own departments as a group. Um, we're gonna have to think differently about police unions because right now, Unions are the tail wagging the dog, uh, and, and and yes, and they have a whole lot of power. And you will always hear a police chief, "Yes, uh, I'd like to do that, but you know we have a contract and we have this." That's because the tail is wagging the dog. Uh, there was a need for police union, and there still is a need for police unions. But they, you know, we we've got to sit down and work with them because they have a stranglehold on our police departments and. Um, that has to be ended, but it just can't be ended tomorrow. There has to be conversation. So there, there is hope, but the first hope is to admit the true purpose of policing in America. And once people accept that as a truth, then we can say, what are we gonna do about it? But as long as we keep fooling ourselves, oh, we serve and protect everybody, then you don't get to the heart of the matter 
you don't can't bring people together to really sit down and plan what you're going to do that that will truly make um, America as safe as it can be. So yeah, so I I wonder if you know we so Rabbi and I are just two white guys when it's when it comes down to it and hearing the idea that the police is the main purpose of it is to police uh, black and brown people, you know, uh, you know, I could say, well, well, I don't know. I mean, I've, I've been pulled over. I've been taken in. The police also police everyone, right? They, they take, um, they, they, they go after other non-white, uh, brown and black people all the time. And so the, obviously the, 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 the purpose must be bigger than that. Um, and so I'm just wondering how to create this conversation because I would assume from a national scale that, that that purpose to get people to talk about it, I could I could feel the pushback already being like, well, that that's not true because there's a lot of people get arrested and a lot of people who the police target who are not black and brown. Um, and so what would be your response to to that? Let's sit down and talk and and let's really look at your experience versus a black person's experience of being stopped sure okay Let, let's yeah. yeah describe your experience okay we'll just uh, we'll describe our experiences and i'll say well why is it that um dylan roof who murdered nine black people was taken alive mm. and george floyd who allegedly passed a, <laughs> allegedly passed a counterfeit nobody's really said it was counterfeit yet is dead Tell me how that happens. I'm going to ask you to tell me how that happens. Right. So there's so there's a need for a for a. See this, this the dialogue is so necessary right in America to hear and to listen, and to have these conversations. Yeah. But I like what you're doing. You're saying don't just listen to me. Actually, I want to hear from you. You yeah. tell me how you that happens. Me. You tell me. But how the that question, happens. the question, the question that, that that pervades my mind is why now, right? Presumably, these conversations have been happening for decades. Decades. Right? Why now are suddenly are our ears open and saying, okay, we're ready to listen. We're ready to make some change in our own uh, society, in our own culture, in, our, in America, because this is boiling over and this is becoming too big of an issue. Why now in 2020, as opposed to 10 years ago, 20 years ago, is it because we're more... We're, we're more socially aware of the challenges that persist itself within our communities. It's more in your face. Is it more because me as just an average person sitting here in America that I have access to information that perhaps I did not have, um, you know, years ago? Is it, is, you know, why the car, why are we really listening now as opposed to a year ago or five years ago? You know, we have something that we say is a Kairos moment. It is chaos, but there's also opportunity. And if we don't take this time, uh, we don't know when the next time will be. As we see the the young people, a mixture of races on the streets around the world saying, we want change. And the hope is that, the hope is in the fact that they're not going to let it lay. They, although they're not out in the streets as much as they were the last two weeks, they are behind closed doors strategizing. And so we're going to have to answer to them because they don't want, you know, they, sometimes the young blacks look at the, the, the older blacks and say, we thought you fixed this. And they say, well, we thought we fixed it too. 
but they don't want to go through the same thing. They don't want to have it come and bite the next generation below them in the behinds as it has bitten them. And so they are committed to, to do whatever needs to be done by any means necessary to make a change. That's exciting, but it's also frightening. And so it, it is time now to listen and to say, okay, we know what the problem is. And we do have the, I mean, this is the greatest country in the world. We have the means to fix it. The question is, do we have the will? And do you think, I mean, also mm. the, the part of that Kairos moment and what will help that will is that there's also people have the time and space to do it because not a lot of, what, how many people are out of work right now? <laughs> right, right. <laughs> and, and, and kids were out of school and now they're definitely out of school with summer. Right. So people, you know, when you see this video, which was horrific, but there's been many other videos that are horrific, yes. but really the last two weeks, the last, well, actually the last month, we've seen two videos, if not three, that are just horrific right. that was just murder porn right uh, ahmaud arbery was yes we, we didn't we as, as white people were like oh that's a you know that there, there's no way around it that is just cold-blooded murder mm -hmm, for being a black mm -hmm. man right mm -hmm. he's just going for a jog a and that's when we saw white evangelical pastors actually coming in front of their congregation mm -hmm. saying this is wrong and they were getting feedback and i mean they were getting pushback um but still saying enough this is horrific we have a problem in our society that we see this black person and say criminal and go shoot him and then this happens and then george floyd happens and it's just like and i don't have any work and i've been pent up and i've been right. stuck inside my house i've been watching I, tv i've seen it all i don't care i'm wearing my mask and marching because yes this is if I die doing this, and I think it gets to the point. If we have the will, we're willing to risk our lives, you know. And they, in, in a and way. they are willing to risk their lives and to bring their children. You know, it's 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 interesting given given the context in which we find ourselves today, um, and take it back ninety years ago. You know, there was a, a, and I'm sure I'm sure for 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 both of you, you're probably very familiar with the um, uh, with the poem that was written by. A Lutheran pastor out of Germany. Um, oh, Niemöller. Yes. Yeah. Right? And, and that whole understanding that you know, first they came for the communists, but I was not a communist, and they came right. for this and the other, and finally they came for me, and there was no, no one left to no speak one left. for me. Right. And, and, and and I'm not trying to push that as you know a Black Lives Matter slogan that says, well, you know, without us, there's nobody left to speak up for us. But a part of me that says. You know, he wrote that 90 years ago. Yes. And I think how much, how true is that statement today that if we don't stand up for ourselves, you know, somebody, somebody once said to me a little while ago, you know, it's interesting how Jews and blacks get along so well. And I said, because we were both slaves. Yes. We, both slaves. Yes. we have slave mentality. Right. We understand what it's like to be strangers in a land not our own. And right. we understand what it's like to be an enslaved people. Right. You're absolutely right. And so this this is the time because if we don't do it now, who will? Mm -hmm. Who will? Yeah, and it's it's the 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 response to Black Lives Matter, which you hear all the time, is all lives matter. And the it very true, yes, all lives do matter. But to your point of the Lutheran pastor who made that quote is he's saying is if if we if we don't recognize, if we if we don't recognize that there's a part of our body, you know, in the Christian terms, we would say, mm -hmm. if a part of the body of Christ is suffering, 
and we don't recognize it and go suffer with them, then the whole body of Christ suffers. So, so right now, no, all lives don't matter because we can't say that. We can't say all lives matter. They they don't because there's, there's a, there's our, we have a a part of our human race that is suffering. And Mm so all lives are not. Suffer. Mm-hmm. So we have to go and be like, so black lives, this is, so it's, uh, at least we're having these conversations. I know I can bring that up in my church and people are like, let's mm-hmm. talk about it before mm-hmm. three or four weeks ago. People are like, what? Black lives matter. Right. Yeah. It's, it's, yeah, and I want to, I'm looking at the time and I know Gayla, you, you are a hot commodity. And so I know you, you, you got to go off to CNN after this. So, um, can, can um, it tells if people want to learn more and, and read your material and find out more about you to gain more, um, uh, um, information, where, where, where can they find you? I, I'm surprised that you can actually find me. If you just Google, I'm surprised that I'm there. Uh, yeah. So, uh, again, the, the book coming out on July 7th is Preaching Black Lives Matter and really ask, uh, what kind of church would we be where or if black chair, black lives truly mattered? And it looks at how to preach. Some people are afraid to preach. Uh, how do you advocate for black lives matter? And then how do you teach in our seminaries and in our churches as if black lives mattered? So that's out July 7th. So good. We well, I sure hope that this this wasn't a horrible experience because we no, would love to fantastic. have you back. I'd love to come back. We're just touching the surface of so many things. I and mean, I just want to talk to you about what was like being a, just a woman in the police department and oh, then a black yeah. woman in the police oh, department. Oh yeah. Uh, <laughs> I, I check all the boxes. <laughs> yeah, just, how, how was that? I want to hear about the wives who came after you. You know, it's like uh, the Beyonce video, right? Where how about know, that? <laughs> with the cop and all yeah anyways um so well god bless you thank, thank you so you. much sister thank keep up fighting a good fight and uh, we look forward to talk to you uh, thank you soon. much okay all right okay take you care peace. Mm-hmm. peace so uh, you know rabbi it's uh you know i don't know if, if you brought up uh, black lives matter the term at uh you know at, at the synagogue uh, do you think that would be uh would there be any tension at all or any pushback or some people might shiver? Would it, well, I mean, I'm, I'm sure like with every community, I, you know, there's always going to be, you know, some on the right side, some on the left side. I, I think, I, I think it's the way it's phrased, the way it's couched and, and really those, those endearing moments, knowing that, yes, this is concern. I mean, you know, when I talk about it within my community or amongst my friends, I mean, it's, it's taken from a Jewish lens. We have a responsibility, right? I mean, even if we go back to 2000 years ago, and I'm, I'm sure you're probably familiar with the phrase, um, but you know, Rabbi Hillel once said that if I am not for myself, who will be for me? And if I am only for myself, what am I? And if not now, when? And I think that that phrase, as, as Reverend Gale was speaking, I mean, that phrase really entered my mind when, when asked the question, why now? Why now in 2020, as opposed to five years ago, 10 years ago, 20 years ago, um, or 10 years in the future? Why now? And I think that that phrase really hit me of, if not now, when? When are we going to have the opportunity? Right. Right. And I think that there's something there. If I am not for myself, who will be for me? Who will, who will look after me? Who will watch over me? Beyond the ethereal God-centered world that we live in, or perhaps that you and I live in, but who will be for me? Who's going to watch over me? Who's going to take care of me? Who's going to so take I, those issues that I have and really support me in some way? And if I am only for myself, well, I'm not open to the possibilities that there are other challenges in the world. And if not now, when? Right, right. And so you have this, 
you know, like what we're experiencing right now at our church is just opening up a lot of dialogues, having black leaders come into the church and speak. And we ask the challenging questions. Tell us what it's like to be black in Martin County. Tell us what it's like black in America, because we want to learn and know more. So we start a dialogue and we can hear and form the empathy and form the relationship and, and join the join the fight and just really expand our mind as, as white people. We sometimes live in a very sheltered world uh, compared to our black brothers and sisters. But now you throw in the whole police force part. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't even know, because I'm just so out of my league on this one, how you even begin that conversation and, and dialogue to say about some reform. And I, I don't even know if, I mean, as, as a, I think you have to sort of like entrench yourself. That has to be a main part of your ministry. You have to be like a police chaplain to understand police culture, to understand the challenges, what it means to be a police officer, to understand their race relations and build the trust to then to be the person to say, okay, now what can we do to make things better? Because um, I don't know, do you think you could get a group of white police officers to agree that yes, the history of our institution was to, and still continues to police um, black and brown people? Oh, I'm, I'm sure you could find that. Absolutely. But the question is, who's going to stand up and, and speak out against the institution and the organization and risk for themselves retribution from their peers and their colleagues? Yeah, you know, it reminds me of, and this is going to be a pretty dramatic comparison. So uh, I'll say forgive me right from the beginning, but I, I couldn't help believe when you say blue blood, you know, runs deep. It's look, look at Catholic priesthood. Right. Mm -hmm. they, the, 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 those guys stuck together. These are men of God. Mm -hmm. That institution stuck together, knowing that there was a their own pandemic, an egregious pandemic of boys and uh, girls being sexually abused mm -hmm. and raped. And and because of that, that bond, right, that union that's there of protect your brother at all costs. Mm -hmm. They just put the culture underneath and they knew it was there. Mm -hmm. They knew it was there. But they just move priests around. They didn't even sometimes kick them out of the priesthood uh, because of the cause of like, we got to stick up for one another. And it makes me cringe now when I hear that sometimes when someone says, hey, you got to look out for your fellow priests. And be like, man, if they screwed up, no, I don't got their back. I'm sorry. There's none of that. I, I, I think it's, but, but I think, I think exactly as you said, I think, I think it, it's based on responsibility, ownership, and accountability. If I did something wrong, let me own it and let me make, and let me set things right. You know, looking at it from that, from, from, from the Catholic perspective, Look, um, you know, there are one of two options here. One, you defrock, and I'm sorry, you are no longer fit to serve in ministry. Don't reassign me somewhere else, because you're just, you're, you're, you're dancing around the issue. You're actually sweeping around the carb and say, don't worry about it. The people that you may have abused in, in, in Santa Fe, New Mexico, well, we're going to send you down to, you know, to Charleston, South Carolina, you start fresh. Well, that's, that's not helpful because you're actually making the problem much, much worse. Then are you also willing to be the whistleblower to stand up and say, hey, bishop or cardinal, this is wrong. And know that you might get defrocked, you might get kicked out, and then you just have to become... I mean, I, I can't imagine what it would be like as a police officer. I mean, I, I saw Serpico, you know, <laughs> just to be the person to stand sure. up. I mean, was it no dog day afternoon? Was it dog day afternoon? I mean, I'm getting my... No, 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 Serpico, Serpico is where he went internally yes. to the police department. Yeah. I can't imagine. So if you want to stick up and say, guys, I think we've got an issue here. We've got to confront this. And you start blowing the whistle in any organization. 
but a police, but definitely in a, in a in a in an institution where you're, you're you have to have each other's back when you're out there. There's people shooting at you. There's people who don't like you, right? And, and there's race t- racial tension, and you're going to be the one to stand up and be like, you know what? I I'm going to question your value system because mm-hmm. the way you treated that person the other day, that it's it's going to need a lot of. But but but, but, but I think. But I think you see it even within your own staff and within our own communities, right? I have people that I stand up for, that I respect, that, you know, but if, if, if they make a mistake and they own it, we work together to rectify it, to make it better. You know, I, I've said to people in the past, I'm really sorry, but in the environment or whatever, whatever you may be fighting for, I can't stand by that. And these are my reasons behind it. As long as we're transparent and we're talking about the issue, I mean, I support my staff. I support, you know, all my, my friends. But if, if my friends do something that counters my own judgment, I think we have to be big enough to be able to say, I'm sorry, I, 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 we, I can't. I know. That. But our, our institution that we work for is not given this right that no one else has in this country, which is to take someone's liberty away and to take someone's life away. So we as a society have entrusted a group of folks and say, you have that power, you have that ability, you have, mm-hmm. you can break the rights that we all have as an individual here to be free. You could take away my liberty and you could take my life and it could be mm-hmm. legal and you'll be backed up in court. So it's, it's going to take, oh, man, some tremendous leadership, some tremendous dialoguing. It's going to be a marathon, but may God come and bless us all because it's obviously needed. So, all right, brother. Well, listen, man, we're, the, the, these, these are going to be some, uh, just so glad to have Reverend Gail on and, um, there's a lot of the, the spirit is a moving in, um, in our country. Well, maybe that's just it for for part two with Reverend Gale, because we, as you said, we didn't really get into the whole, you know, from policing to um, um, spiritually protecting. We didn't look at that at that issue of, you know, what what brought her to become, you know, an Episcopal priest and the ministry and the and the loving work that she does and how much of her work in her ministry has yeah. also been couched through the guise of 20 years. Yep. Um, of law enforcement. Right, right. And as she thought about going, going back as a chaplain of how to kind of maybe be the person to help lead reform. So, all right, brother. Well, it is once again an awesome week. If you are just listening, we have a podcast that you can go and check us out to hear all the other um, interviews that we've had on here uh, on A Priest and a Rabbi. You just uh, look up and Google A Priest and a Rabbi podcast and we show up on every single platform, including Apple Podcasts and Stitcher. So please leave a review. Um, and uh, Rabbi, God bless you this weekend, uh, today. God bless you today for your Shabbat services. And uh, would it be appropriate to see Shabbat Shalom right now? Yeah, absolutely. Okay, Shabbat Shalom, my brother. Thank you. Uh, I'm going to go get myself ready for, uh, we got services all week long online at St. Mary's Episcopal Church. Come join us or go over to the Temple Beth Chaim, do a double header. And uh, God bless you. Have a Blessed week and pray for our country, for the spirit is moving, and we will see you next Friday right here at A Priest and a Rabbi.